a reliance on a financial system, which leans very heavily toward VC and very heavily toward risk on trading. With that type of environment, we have put our space sector on said house of cards. And if we want to have certain technologies or institutions emerge as winners so that we do have prevalence in space, we have to think about what this means structurally. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello there, podcasters. I think it's fair to say that this has been an ugly week for Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit, and that's after a pretty joyless first quarter. It was joyless for a number of reasons, but topping the list was the January 9th launch failure out of Spaceport Cornwall in the UK. Nine satellites were lost. Two of them belonged to the U.S. Department of Defense, and another two were from Britain's Ministry of Defense. To be clear, Virgin Orbit is not the same commercial entity as Virgin Galactic. That's the space tourism company Branson founded in 2004. Virgin Galactic was initially in charge of developing the now famous horizontal launch system, Launcher 1. You know it when you see it because it uses a Boeing 747. Now, in 2000. In 2017, Virgin Galactic spun off the Launcher One project to form Virgin Orbit. The business case was to provide on-demand launch services to the small satellite market, which is growing. And that interest in small sat launch, and some may say an unhealthy dose of hubris, prompted Branson and Virgin Orbit CEO Dan Hart to launch the company onto the NASDAQ stock exchange on December 30th, 2021. So Richard, Dan, congratulations again to you and the entire Virgin team. We're so proud to be your partner and look forward to continuing to support you as you innovate and grow as a NASDAQ listing company. And now please join me in welcoming your CEO, Dan Hart, to the podium. Wow. What an honor it is to be here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square celebrating the listing of our public company. This is a major milestone for Virgin Orbit following a year that has seen us prove our technology and place satellites successfully into orbit for commercial enterprises, the U.S. government, and our allies. The opening price for common stock was about eight and a half dollars. This week, just over 15 months later, the company announced it and its subsidiaries were in Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings. The stock price at Friday's close was at roughly 20 cents a share. The outgoing chief operating officer, Tony Gingis, sent a memo to all current and former employees. He blasted the company's leadership and apologized to the some 675 highly skilled staffers now looking for work. And here's the defense angle. 
Virgin Orbit created a defense subsidiary called Virgin Orbit National Systems and brought three retired Air Force major generals onto the board. And according to a third quarter earnings call, Virgin Orbit has a contract with the U.S. Missile Defense Agency to work on missile defense targets and hypersonics. There's fallout here in the United States and in other countries such as Poland, South Korea, and Brazil. Now to unpack what happened to Virgin Orbit, as well as the effect that the Silicon Valley bank failure has had on the commercial space sector's ecosystem, we have Chris Quilty, George Pullen, and Chris Stott. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris, George, and Chris. Welcome back to the downlink. Thanks, Laura. Hi, Laura. Great to be back. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Great to see you, Chris. Nice to meet you, George. It's the beginning of the month, and so that means we're all here to talk about, well, the moon, Virgin Orbit, Silicon Valley Bank, perhaps even Nokia, the money. But before we do, let's have a quick round of introductions. And Chris Q, that's Q for Quilty, you start. Uh, Thanks, uh, Chris Quilty, Quilty Analytics. We are a uh, about a 10-man firm headquartered down in St. Petersburg, Florida, that does research, financial research on the space industry, along with investment banking and strategy work. And George, you're up. Thanks, Laura. My name is George Pullen. I'm the chief economist for Milky Way Economy. We are a firm that specializes in space economics. We also have a number of portfolio companies that we assist with their efforts to get us all to space quicker. And finally, Chris S., it's been a while since you were last on. What's the latest for you and Lone Star? Uh, Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone, for having me today. My name is Chris Stott. I'm the CEO, founder, and chair of Lone Star Data Holdings. Um, Yeah, our first two data centers are headed to the moon this year, and we're really looking forward to it. Well, when are they going to be there? You know, like give us oh, yeah. dates. No, like, like no. yeah. come on, we're dig in. With intuitive machines. Uh, we're intuitive machines, an amazing partner to work with on the NASA Clips program, and we're flying on both of their scheduled missions this year. First one being, oh, as far as we can tell, the first one uh, being in June. That's very soon. Okay, let's start with the news. Richard Branson's space launch company, Virgin Orbit, a publicly traded company, this week it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. When market investors could first buy shares two years ago, Virgin Orbit was valued at roughly $3 billion. You know, gentlemen, it, it has or perhaps had contracts with the UK Ministry of Defense and the National Reconnaissance Office, the US Space Force. It has, and again, perhaps had a backlog of commercial customers. So starting with Chris Q and and gentlemen jump in at will, but Chris Q, what happened here? Yeah. So I'll start by saying I don't write research coverage on uh, Virgin, but uh, obviously I I follow the finances of companies in the industry. Um, Demand hasn't been a, a huge issue. I mean, we're seeing lots of small sats getting launched, but there is competition. Uh, and certainly they're competing against other companies like Rocket Lab, which has you know, proved operational success. Um, I did dive into the model and took a look at it. They haven't reported fourth quarter results, but uh, to me, it, it looks primarily like a spending issue. 
And just uh, if I run the numbers off uh, SGNA, uh, you know, which is basically the operations of the company, uh, they uh, it's been up two and a half times to about 110 million is what it'll finish this year against revenues of 40 million dollars. So they're not growing revenue at two and a half times. Uh, you can't grow your spending at that level. I'd like to add something in there too, and we we sometimes talk about bankruptcy like all bankruptcies are the same. And so I just want to introduce a little bit of financial jargon. So they've actually filed for a chapter 11 bankruptcy. And so a chapter 11 bankruptcy is a bankruptcy which allows for reorganization. And so this might not be the last we've heard of them. Uh, I have no knowledge whether that is the case or not, but I just want to make it clear this is a chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. And with that type of filing, they can uh, reorganize their affairs and their debts and their assets in a way that lets them reemerge. But doesn't this have some sort of hit to valuations, perhaps even across the board? I mean, just as a factor that I pulled up, when Virgin Orbit first started trading, it it, it started trading at $9.67 a share. And today it opened at $0.21 cents a share. And while it is just this one company and it is filed for Chapter 11, not Chapter 7, I'm just wondering, does this not hurt everybody in the boat? At least, you know, I've been hearing some people complain that this is just bad for the commercial space sector in general. Well, Chris, can I jump? No, no, I was going to say, I mean, Laura, it's, it's an excellent point, but how many launch companies are there? It's heartbreaking when any company goes down. Of course it is. But this didn't happen overnight. It happened, you'll they'll probably go back and look at cost structures like Chris has done over the last couple of years, and you can see the writing on the wall. But how many launch companies are there and how many are sustainable in a marketplace? So ironically, sadly, losing a launch company benefits those who are still around because they pick up their customers. There's less competition. Yeah, I think I'd echo, I think I'd echo Chris's comment. If we if we look at launch, there's been wonderful articles for years now on how saturated launch is. There's over a hundred launchers, and you can get numbers quite a bit higher depending on whose list you refer to. And so there's an important thing here to remember that a hit for Virgin isn't necessarily a hit for the entire space sector. If we even think about the broad sectors, you can put them into three pieces, right? You have up, right? So you have launch, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the up part, we're talking about launch. But then there's the in space, there's the services and companies that service the in space market. And then there's the companies that service the down, right? So that's bringing the data down and processing. So I don't think a hit in one part of this market, again, just breaking the three broad parts, is a hit across the entire market. Yeah. And I, and I would also say, obviously, there's something a little bit unique about Virgin Orbit, which is they are the only horizontal launch option in the market. And look, I mean, it was obvious to everyone, including the executives at Virgin Orbit, that they had a very high launch cost relative to any other option. And what are you paying for there? You're paying for the optionality of on-demand launch, right? Anywhere you can get to an airport, you can launch. Who cares about that? Well, the answer is in a market where you've got a dozen launch providers, potentially, I mean, there's probably lots of options, but the one customer who does care is the government, right? And, and you've seen just recently, I think it was a $60 million launch contract awarded for, for rapid launch. Um, so my guess is if you look at the long history here of horizontal launch, uh, the original player was Orbital Sciences back in the 1990s with their Pegasus launch from an L-1011. 
Um, it was successful for a while when there were very few other options, but it got way too expensive and basically got shut down. Uh, the other was Paul Allen's Strata Launch, which after its spruce goose moment went bankrupt and is now owned by a private equity firm that's using it for government hypersonic launches. So I guess I would argue there, there's probably a market for this. It's not the mass market for commercial launch that uh, perhaps the, the founders had once hoped for. Um, but I, I suspect that the assets will be put to use in some way or another. And the second big piece of space and money news is the fallout from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, or as some like to call it, SVB. Rocket Lab, which just a few months ago formally opened its defense division, had accounts reportedly worth $38 million, or almost 8% of its cash and securities. And ouch, that's definitely above the $250,000 that FDIC uh, covers. In addition to that, the bank was known for loaning money to space startups and more established companies such as Rocket Lab, Redwire, Astra, Planet. George, I know you have been following this one very closely. What is the fallout? And What's the path forward? What are you hearing? So what I think SVB reveals to the space sector is that there is a fragility in our reliance on existing systems. And sometimes when we think about existing systems, we are very quick to think about you know, the, the unfunded technology gap that we have when it comes to um, dual use. So everyone's always speaking about how we have this unfunded technology gap, and we want to make sure that once commercial space figures it out, that DOD can grab it, right? That's that's the mantra. There's an unfunded technology gap there. That's a huge issue. The second part of this issue is a reliance on a financial system, which leans very heavily toward VC and very heavily toward risk on trading. With that type of environment, we have put our space sector on said house of cards. And if we want to have certain technologies or institutions emerge as winners so that we do have prevalence in space, we have to think about what this means structurally. And so I worry about that more than anything else because it wasn't just the names and the news in the space sector. I personally know several uh, smaller and medium-sized space startups that were impacted and had problems and needed short-term loans to make payroll and everything like that until this washed over. So this is a big issue and we haven't solved it. Yeah, so this is Chris, I'll, I'll weigh in. I mean, there's sort of echoes of what happened in 2008, right? When, when the financial system started to crack, the government stepped in, saved Bear Stearns. And then when Lehman started to go, they're like, ah, screw you guys and let them go under. And then that, that caused the waterfall uh, of everybody else to start collapsing. So what you've seen is the government, you know, covering for Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and, you know, the Swiss taking care of their issue with Credit Suisse. I mean, they're they're doing everything they can to keep this thing from falling apart. Not my sector. I don't cover finance, so I'm not going to opine. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I wouldn't think we're quite out of the woods here. Now, Silicon Valley Bank is a very unique bank. I mean, they were top 20 in the country or so. It, it, it's large. But, I mean, their clientele was startup companies and and the startup ecosystem in the US the the venture capital system 
is unique to the U.S. I mean, don't let them tell you otherwise. There's country, other countries or Europe in the world that claim they have venture capital. They don't. They don't have the risk appetite. Um, you know, if famously, if you start and 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 uh, fail with three companies in the U.S., uh, that's fine, right? People, you've learned your experiences, and the fourth one maybe will be a success. If you fail once and and you're an entrepreneur in in Germany or France, you're done. Nobody's ever going to give you money before. And Silicon Valley Bank, you know, as an entity that was very tightly interwoven with the venture community, um, you know, clearly they they operate in an environment where there was a lot of risk. They obviously didn't manage it well enough through a very different capital cycle that we're going through here with interest rates going up, something that very few people have seen in our lifetime. Interest rates have only gone down. And so nobody knew how to manage it properly. But I'd say there's a risk, you know, at this point that the, I'm not going to call it permissive, but, you know, the very uh, synergistic way that Silicon Valley Bank worked with entrepreneurs, um, you know, whoever the new lender becomes the Silicon Valley Bank is not going to operate in the same way. And that could actually put a break on our entire innovation cycle um, if, if we see, uh, you know, a much more restrictive access to capital than we've had in the past. It's not a good thing. Yeah, no, and building on what Chris, Laura, building what Chris and Georgia both said, I'm worried that the space companies in specific have not learned the lesson of this. Look, um, in business- Well, what is the lesson for, what, what, I mean, just to spell it out for those of us that oh, sure. are in and outside of business, what is that lesson that they need oh. and we all need to actually learn? The lesson is, is that financial science is equally as important as rocket science. And your choice of banker as a business is a huge decision to make. And the same way you don't go for a cheap doctor or a cheap lawyer, you don't go to a cheap bank. And I find so many of our colleagues in the space industry don't appreciate how a bank and the choice of bank can work with you from your growth stage of a company all the way up through IPO and beyond. They don't understand the difference between retail banking, merchant banking, Oh my gosh. I mean, it's even like state banking versus national versus international. And a banker is one of your best partners in a business, if you allow them to be. Much like a regulator can be incredibly helpful to you. A banker equally is. And I look at the choice of Silicon Valley Bank, and I know a couple of companies and friends who were over there, and then they were desperately seeking other bankers. And in the moment it got rescued, Oh, I'll go back to that, please. And they, they have done nothing. And it's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is this is a huge issue. I love the way Chris put it. It is important that rocket scientists also understand that they need to be uh, financial stewards. And if they're not going to be that financial steward, they need to bring some of the team who's going to be. Because if you look at, for example, some of the literature, um, I say literature, it, it was mostly tweets, um, that the likes of Y Combinator were putting out, and Y Combinator is a very famous startup accelerator if people in the audience aren't familiar. Uh, y Combinator was talking about how as many as 100,000, when I repeat that number, 100,000 startups could be negatively impacted by this. They said that anywhere from 30 to 50% of their own incubated accelerated startups had exposure to Silicon Valley Bank. The real question is, like Chris said, now that this moment has passed, how many of these companies are looking into getting a second or third banking relationship? So if a crisis does occur, they have the ability to switch banks. 
how many people are diversifying where their payroll comes out of versus where their SBIR, STTR awards are hitting, right? How many people are doing that right now today? The answer is probably not enough. Yeah, and guys, I like my bankers conservative, stodgy, well-trained. I want to see them in their jobs for years and years and years. And if I go to a bank that has a coffee shop in the lobby, I'm out. Absolutely no way, right? Make bankers stodgy again. I think that's what Chris yes. said. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. But from an investor standpoint, I mean, if you're looking at a space company, I mean, can you just say, ask the company, so where do you do your banking? I mean, is that something enough as a litmus test about whether or not they're actually serious about how they are stewards of your money? I have actually done that, Laura. I've been in a fortunate position uh, to do some investing in space companies in the past. And one of my list of questions is, who's your banker? And if they look puzzled and confused and they say, well, we have a local credit union, I'm like, yep, nope, nope. And sometimes if I really like the company, I'll give them a list of people at Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, et cetera. But otherwise I'm like, yeah, nope. Fifth, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth bank. Excuse me, who? No. <laughs> right? You're going to need major capital. You're going to need major help. This is the space industry. But they have a so, coffee shop, Chris. I know, right? They're trendy. They're wearing T-shirts. I, no. I would I would agree with what Chris said. It, it is one of my questions when I'm doing due diligence or when I'm prepping other people to do uh, the experience of having that done to them. And what I have also experienced is there's a difference about what bank you need for what stage you're at. Mm. So if this is a company going through a seed round, they're an orbital prime, they've only had a couple of awards, they might be very well served with a credit union. By the time they're getting further along in their business development and they have massive exposures and they have massive needs for lines of credit, you better know your banker's first name and his birthday and he better know yours. Yeah, and I'll just add one final point here, which is, you know, I think um, there's a, a certain class of financing that, you know, venture capitalists use. Obviously, they raise a lot of equity through VCs. But Silicon Valley Bank was also a major player in venture debt. And uh, as a class of capital, you know, I think its availability is gone poof, uh, certainly in the near term and, you know, perhaps even in, in the longer term, depending upon how, the, how things shake out over here the next couple of years. I hope I'm not like beating a dead horse here, but let's say you're an acquisitions officer for the Space Force and you're looking to, you know, sign contracts for things like rapid launch or for the NRO, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, should government also be asking, hey, who's your banker? Are you going to have the money to pay your payroll? I mean, does it go that far? Yeah, it does. And I would suggest that the, the government is, it would be very a good thing for the government to do to at least have a conversation with some of the companies who they're giving contracts to, not the bankers of, and why, to say, look, we are the US government, here's how the contract works. There's gonna be a point when the company we've given this contract to is gonna be running through capital and they're gonna need an overdraft facility to make payroll until we pay them you know, 60, 80, 90 days, whatever later. And to the banker, don't panic. We're the government, this is gonna get paid, but they will need an overdraft facility. Look, banks' job in life is to sell you money. A good banker will go, oh, this is awesome. I'll sell you that money for 90 days or whatever. 
right? But sometimes we see people go, oh, I don't have the money for payroll. I'm like, well, did you talk to your bank? I haven't talked to my bank. And I'm like, always have that conversation. They can't help you unless they're ready to help you and show them the balance sheet, show them the capital outlay, show them copies of the contracts. And sometimes having a contract officer be able to call up and say, it's okay, yeah, I, I confirm these guys have a contract. I confirm we'll be paying on time. Gents, is that, I mean, George, Chris, fair enough? I might, I might take it a little bit, I'm going to hedge it a little there, mm -hmm. right? So what I'm going to add is some of the 60, 90, even I'm starting to hear 120 day out payments are actually hitting businesses because of the relationships that they have with primes or some mm -hmm. of the big boys who have no business making the smaller firms wait 60, 90 or 120 days. That's a separate issue that I also I think is an that. area where, where we could get some contract guys involved to say, listen, you, you can't be doing this to your subs. We need to support the whole ecosystem. When we gave you this contract, we knew that you were sending it to the subs. You can't make them wait 90, 120 days. That's a real issue. And I have companies that are feeling that right now. On the flip side of that, I do think these, um, I hate to call them overdraft, but uh, coverage lines of yeah. credit are, are important uh, for businesses of all sizes. And so that is also part of a due diligence that you'll go through, which is who's your bank, who's your other bank, what's your line of credit? Th those are your first three on the financial section for your relationships every time. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, I think the government is cognizant of this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but back in 2008, uh, when when uh, access to capital got tight, the government actually put forth a memorandum or directive or whatever that ordered uh, government contractors to accelerate payments into to uh, to contractors. Um, I haven't seen that happen yet. I don't know that it's needed yet. But the government can be flexible when when they see the need for you know cash flow uh, within their contractor base. So very quickly. Chris Q, the first quarter just finished. I know I say this every time I talk to you, but you know, if you just look at the news, it's still really weird out there. You're the market master among us. Give us your overall take. What do we need to know and understand? Well, look, I mean, the, the discussion we just had around um, the state of finance uh, certainly has an impact on the industry as a whole. Uh, what I would say is, you know, from fourth quarter to first quarter, has anything fundamental changed with the space industry and the supply demand? The answer is no, right? These things tend to take longer timeframes to play out and impact, you know, the actual demand. And, and think about it, like if you're a launch company and, you know, the, the dozen or two dozen uh, little constellation companies out there that were planning on launch all start stretching out their CapEx budget and say, well, we were going to launch six satellites this year. Let's cut it back to three and we'll push it out next year. It does have a bleed down effect on the launch market. So, um, you know, I haven't seen companies. Well, let me back that up. There are companies that have been cutting back on their CapEx plans, but a lot of them were companies that went public in SPAC transactions. They had a limited, you know, pool of cash and capital they raised and it's burning down. And uh, that that's separate from the financing environment. That's certainly just more reflective of their operations and their cash flow. And just a quick one. 
yesterday it came out that OPEC is going to put a cap on oil production. Uh, OPEC, as in AKA the Saudi government, wink nod, they say it's due to the instability in the banking sector. Does this have any effect on the space ecosystem that we should be aware of? Eh, I, w- I would say minor. Okay. <laughs> have to ask. Well, I mean, look, someone's got to pay for that half a trillion, sorry, $600 billion bid they're putting in for, is it the Winter Olympics or some sort of uh, winter games in Saudi Arabia and they're building some facility? Let that sink in. World Cup was over $200 billion for Qatar. Saudi, they'll go for some sort of winter games at $600 billion. That kind of money, we could have space-based solar power around the planet and whole cities on Mars and the moon and democracy forever. But, eh, you know, let's go watch a couple of lads kick a soccer ball around for $200 billion instead. I, I'm not going to go on the record of being against soccer. I think that would uh, yeah, alienate about, right. alien about uh, three quarters of the world. It lasts good, yes. But, um, uh, no, I agree with those sentiments, so I, I, I totally agree with those sentiments. And, George, just to come back to something that you taught us all a few months ago, and that is still the case, especially around worries about recession, the yield rate on treasuries is still inverted Yes. So, <laughs> so this is always an indicator that economists watch and it's not only inverted, but stayed inverted. Um, yeah, this months. Is an, it, this is months. Yeah, for months, for months now. It, it's a co- signal that's been confirmed and then reconfirmed. Um, a lot of economic thinkers like to say this time it's different, right? This, this time the Fed knows what they're doing. Um I have no crystal ball if that's true, but this is an extremely bad signal that economists follow, and it's been persistent now for a while. Now, before I close out this episode, I want you to know that there is actually a second half to this conversation, which is about the moon, the lunar economy, and competition with China. It's so strong that it really deserves to be its own episode. So come back next week. It's going to be quite interesting. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.